0: And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister may the lord add his blessing to the reading of his word let's pray together this morning father now we pause to give attention to these three verses as we do so we pray that your spirit would be present among us that father uh, there would be assurance given where assurance is needed and father there would be conviction given where conviction is needed we ask these things now in jesus name amen In our text for last week, a text known as the Great Christ Hymn, the Apostle Paul told us of how it is that redemption has been accomplished. This morning now, he turns his attention to teach us how that redemption is both applied and also experienced. Now this passage also helps give us a robust definition of what it means to be a Christian. You see, being a Christian is not a default position. Saying that, well, you know, I believe in God, but I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not a Jew, and I'm not a Hindu, so I guess by default I must be a Christian. No. As we're going to see this morning, Christians persevere in their faith. We will learn this morning that Christians are those who have experienced a new birth, a supernatural birth. Christians are those who are now very different from who they once were. Now that notion is captured for us in our big idea this morning. If you look at the top of page five. You see there the big idea for Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. We must persevere in our faith, for who we now are is not who we once were. We must persevere in our faith, for who we now are is not who we once were. Paul begins this passage by reminding the Colossians and also reminding us of who we were. Once we were very different from who we are now. And he begins by saying that we were once alienated and hostile in mind. Now that word alienated is interesting because it literally means to be separated from. So Paul begins by talking about who we once were by telling us that we were once separated from God. And in the passage that Abby read for us this morning, we saw that that particular separation is sort of multifaceted. In chapter 3, verse 8, we saw that it was Adam and Eve who once they realized what they had done and when they heard God's voice, they fled from Him. They separated from Him. But then at the end of the chapter, in chapter 3, verse 23, we saw that, no, it was God who said, I'm going to send them away. We are separated. We are alienated from the God who created us. We are cut off from our Creator. But it isn't just that we are separated. He goes on to say that we are separated and hostile in mind. In other words, apart from the redemptive work of God's Spirit, our thoughts about God are not neutral. Our thoughts about God are not ambivalent. But rather, we are antagonistic. We like the idea of a God, but we're pretty sure that He's sitting in our seat. We want to trade places. We want to be Him. We shake our fist whenever He isn't following our plan. We get very angry when He doesn't act the way in which we think he ought to act. After all, why does he exist if not to give me all the things that I ask for? We are alienated, we are antagonistic, and then because of that we do evil deeds. In other words, we are apprentices in evil. That's what we practice at. And there's an interesting, albeit very perverse, sort of spiral going on We're alienated, we're antagonistic in mind, and so we do evil deeds. And the more we do evil deeds, the more our mind gets twisted, the more we become alienated. And so it's this very perverse, very dark sort of downward spiral that shows this uh, sad interaction between how we think and how we act. We are alienated and antagonistic, therefore we practice evil. The more evil that we practice, the more alienated and the more antagonistic we become, and it's this vicious downward cycle. When my sister Chris was in eighth grade, she wasn't feeling well. Uh, We had just moved to Fremont. I thought she was just trying to get out of school, but she actually liked school, which meant she was weird from the get-go. But she just didn't have any energy, had this strange cough, just couldn't really, just was feeling down. And so my mom took her to the doctor, and the doctor at first, I thought maybe she had mononucleosis, which as her older brother, I thought was hilarious, because mononucleosis is the kissing disease. And I knew my sister hadn't been kissing anybody, so I found the irony to be quite delicious. OK, so we'll give her some antibiotics, whatever, whatever they're going to do, and that'll be fine. And Well, she didn't get any better. So they took her back to a different doctor. This doctor said, oh, no, it's not mono. She has rheumatic fever. Well, rheumatic fever, if you don't treat it, rheumatic fever, if you don't drastically change your life, rheumatic fever can actually kill you. I realize that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, To hear someone who's supposed to be a minister of the gospel, who's supposed to speak for and represent this God who is loving and forgiving and gracious and kind, to hear him saying you're alienated, you're antagonistic, and you're an apprentice in evil, that's going to sound really, really harsh. But friends, please understand, what would be even worse would be to misdiagnose the truth about you. See, a misdiagnosis of what's going on with you will kill you not just literally physically but it, it 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 will damn you to hell literally so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian I just want you to understand this is an accurate diagnosis of who you are we don't always like to hear the truth but one of the things that we know about folks who love us, and folks who really and truly are our friends, is that they will tell us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. So please understand, it's because God loves you that he's telling you this truth. It's because God desires a relationship with you that he's telling you, hey, it's not good right now. It's because God cares about you, loves you, desires a relationship with you, and sent His Son to die in your place that He wants you to understand clearly, listen, you're separated from Me. Your mind is hostile towards Me. And you do deeds that grieve Me. You do deeds that take My glory and seek instead... To grasp it for yourself. This is who Paul says. You once were. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. This is who you are. But there's good news. The good news comes in verse 22. It tells us now he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Paul begins in verse 21 by telling us who we once were. He now uh, shifts and tells us who we now are. Who we are are those who have been reconciled. Now he told us that back in verse 20. That it's Jesus who has reconciled to himself all things that he's made peace with God by the blood of his cross. We have been reconciled. And we have been reconciled, he says, in Christ's body of flesh through his death. See, here's the reality about how the world works. The wages of sin is death, and there can be no reconciliation. There can be no a covering of sin apart from death. And so we are reconciled to God because the Lord Jesus Christ in His body of flesh died on our behalf. In order for you to not be separated, to not be alienated, to not be antagonistic, Jesus Christ had to die. And so if you're here this morning and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that you have been reconciled to God. And not only have you been reconciled, But you're blameless. Now, those parentheses need a bit of uh, explanation. It says positionally, not experientially. And here's what that means. Uh, If your day yesterday was anything like mine, by about uh, one in the afternoon, I knew I was not a blameless human being. Uh, I was home with my wife most of the day. So we husbands and wives, you know how that goes, right? Uh, you, you, the more time you spend with your spouse, generally speaking, the more you recognize that neither of you are particularly blameless, uh, nor are either of you particularly lovable. But nonetheless, we realize experientially that we are not blameless. But what Paul wants us to understand is that now when God sees us when we are in Christ, we are without blame positionally. That's not our experience. But when God now looks at those who are in Christ, He doesn't see all the ridiculous and silly things that we do. He doesn't see the sinful thoughts and actions that we have. He doesn't see the ways in which we're seeking uh, to claim His own glory for ourselves. Rather, what's he, what He sees is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are blameless. Blameless. And because we've been reconciled and because we are now blameless, we are ready to stand before God Almighty. He says that each of you present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. In other words, we're going to stand before the just judge. We're going to stand before the just judge, and instead of hearing what we should, which is, you're guilty, get out of my face, instead we're going to hear not guilty. We can stand before him, and instead of cowering and fleeing as our first parents did in our Old Testament reading this morning, we will stand before him in Christ and hear, not your guilty, get out of here. We will hear instead, well done, good and faithful servant. See, who we once were is not at all who we are. And Paul wants us to understand that the work that God has done in principle, the work that has been played out now in practice, means that we have a particular future. That brings us to our third point. We must go on. We must go on. Or we could even say how we must go on. Now, this is the point in which it gets a little confusing. Because it seems as though the Apostle Paul is suggesting that our salvation, that our security in the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow conditional on our own performance. That doesn't seem to be a very Presbyterian thing to say. And it's not a particularly biblical thing to say. And since we understand that the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible, it's helpful for us to think about a parable that Jesus told. Remember when He told us the parable of the soils. And He talks about the seed. The sower goes out and He spreads the seed and it lands on the ground. And some of the soil receives the seed gladly and it sprouts up and it's great, but then all of a sudden the heat comes and it just begins to wear down and it withers and it dies. In fact, in the parable of the soils, there are four different kinds of soil, and only one of them is a kind of soil that endures and bears fruit. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is explaining here to us. If indeed you have been reconciled, you are blameless, and you are ready to stand before God, then you will indeed continue in your faith. You will indeed persevere. And please understand, the Bible makes it clear that while it is an expectation for believers to persevere, it's not on us to do that in our own power. Remember what he told the Philippians, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And still, in verse 23, Paul reminds those, who are in Christ, that if indeed we are in Christ, we will continue in the faith. We will keep going. He's prayed for that already. In chapter 1, verse 11 of the book of Colossians, he says to them in the prayer, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul says, hey, listen, if you really are a believer, then you're going to endure, and I want you to endure. I'm praying to God that you will endure, that you will continue, that you will persevere in the faith. I get, I think they've cut it down now to four times a year, I get the uh, alumni magazine of the seminary, actually the two seminaries that I've gone to, And it's stunning to me to think about the number of guys who started off, started well in ministry, and now I've I've been at it uh, longer. But it was stunning to me in the first five years how many guys I graduated with who were smart and likable and fairly well-adjusted human beings, but they did not persevere in ministry. And some of them, the trauma of that was such that they didn't persevere in their faith either. And sadly, I think we all know of people who at one season in their life have made a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus and then just stopped. Friends, the idea of once saved, always saved is nowhere in the Bible. But the idea of those whom God has set apart, those whom God has reconciled, made blameless and made ready to stand before Himself, they will persevere in their faith. That is an absolutely biblical idea. And then he tells them to stop squirming. That's a paraphrase. When he says, continue the face stable and steadfast, not shifting. He has here the idea of, and Paul uh, was, was a sports fan, which is appropriate on the day in which we're all going to watch the Super Bowl. Paul liked athletic metaphors. And this idea that he gives to us in verse 23, continuing stable and steadfast, not shifting, uh, comes from the world of wrestling. That you would stand and you would have a good base and you would stay firm and you wouldn't be squirming and you wouldn't be moving and shifting, but rather your hope in Jesus and the gospel would be secure. That if you understand properly once you were, but now you are, then you won't be shifting back and forth. You won't think, as the Colossians are being tempted to think, that you need to add something somehow to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds them, finally, that they shouldn't be shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard. Now that word hope is an interesting one. It's loaded. And in Paul... It usually speaks to uh, what we talked about already in terms of who we are, that we're ready to stand before God Almighty. The hope that we have is an eternal hope. The hope that we have in that sense is what we would call eschatological. It's not just in this life, but it's in the understanding and in the idea that there is a life that is yet to come. And it's only in Christ, that we are made ready to stand before God Almighty. It's only in Christ that we can enjoy eternity for which we were created. And to somehow trade the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that that brings is to trade hope for nonsense. Now, Paul is kinder to the Colossians than he was to the Galatians. He's kinder to the Colossians than he was to the Corinthians, but he speaks in very striking and in very severe terms to those churches. He uses, uh, nowadays, we would say, very spicy language in telling them to not forsake the hope that is theirs in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he's kinder, he's gentler. Here he just says, listen, don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Don't, don't do it. Stand firm. Continue. Stop squirming. And don't trade hope for nonsense. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table. And as we come to the table, we are going to be reminded of what Paul has told us. That we have been reconciled to God in the body of flesh by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be reminded that Christ himself has made peace by the blood of his cross. That we, who were once separated from God, are now reconciled before him. That we who once stood guilty and condemned are now blameless. And because of his death, we are ready to stand before him and hear not your guilty, but hear instead, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the hope that is ours in the gospel. We've been reminded this morning that that's a hope for this life. Not with this have your best life now nonsense. But you have reminded us this morning that you are sovereign, that you are a creator, that you heal, that you can do above and beyond that which we can even imagine. And we bless you for that. But Father, we bless you also. That in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we once were, is not now who we are. And that uh, you give the promise that those who are in Christ, you will keep, you will bring to completion. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would indeed persevere in the faith. And Father, uh, we would dare pray this morning for folks we know who started the Christian life well, but have fallen away, Lord, we ask that by your grace and by your mercy, they would return. That you would grant them the new birth. That you would grant them to trust and rely upon your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things now in his name. Amen.